Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host, Eric Raskin, I am Kira Mulvaney. And, and Eric, wow, what a wild finish to the big sporting event of the weekend. What a wild start, really. I mean, to be honest, it was really effectively all over within in the first 15 seconds. I, I, I mean, obviously, I'm talking about the alleged boxing bout between 50-something former professional steroid user and baseball player Jose Canseco and some guy from Barstool Sports. Um, if you haven't seen it, don't worry. Um, at least there was, though, actual real fighting this past weekend in the form of a bare-knuckle boxing event. Uh, but even that was overshadowed by the post-fight interview, which actually has me wondering, Eric, are you a person or are you a feeling? Uh, I am neither. I am a <laughs> female bare-knuckle fighter who thinks she's a pro wrestler. How's that for an yes. answer? <laughs> yes. It was a little uh, bit Ultimate Warrior-ish. <laughs> yes. What a truly weird Friday night it was on Twitter. My timeline was all bare knuckle fighting and the I'm a feeling lady uh, and Jose and Jose Canseco getting knocked out. That was my timeline. That should tell you it wasn't a very strong weekend for the actual sport of boxing. Canseco, man, he, he really should have exited stage left after that home run bounced off his head. That was uh, that was maybe a sign <laughs> of things to come for him. Uh, but but two things I'll say in defense of Jose Canseco. One, he's not Kurt Schilling. He has that yes. going for him. <laughs> yeah. uh, and two, uh, Barstool's Dave Portnoy claimed that Canseco took a dive and, and managed to get paid a million dollars for it. And Barstool felt ripped off, which is probably all part of the act. But if there's a chance Canseco did indeed get one over on Barstool, I guess yes. that's a win for humanity. Yes. There was something that Portnoy posted in that, that he said that, you know, uh, Canseco were, was on a percentage if it exceeded their highest ever you know pay-per-view and he said it blew past our pay-per-view records which makes me think what was their previous pay-per-view record like how many people saw this yeah i don't i mean i know barstool has a big following we can we can be fans or not be fans as much as we want but they do have a big following but nevertheless how many of those people pay for i assume this was the main event of this thing i don't know so yeah i don't know um i i I wanted to note though as a third item in kenseiko's defense uh that he was part of the classic homer at the bat simpsons episode i I, thought he was i was going to include that uh but then I, i did a little googling uh did you know he was the one baseball player of the nine they brought in who made them rewrite the script for him no, I didn't yeah. know that. So apparently his plot line was supposed to be that Mrs. Krabappel seduces him in a Bull Durham parody of sorts where she's basically Susan Sarandon, but Canseco's then-wife objected, so they wrote him a different plot. Oh, wow. I can't remember what ended up happening to him. Like, he, what, what, what fell they, him? They went very much the let's make Jose Canseco and his wife happy direction. By oh, he, he was, run into the burning building? Exactly. He was he the hero him. saving everyone in the burning building. So. Yeah, that's a little different. <laughs> yeah, slightly. Well, well, as you folks can already tell, we're coming off a slow weekend in terms <laughs> of fights. But, undaunted, we have put together another jam-packed podcast for you uh, shortly 
Uh, we will welcome our friend Keith Eidek of BoxingScene.com to discuss all the recent news in the boxing world and to get his take on some top fighters and notable upcoming fights. Uh, also, Eric will be revealing his tweet of the week, and I will be counting down my list of the top five great fights that people didn't see coming. Uh, but let's start by beginning some preview conversations that will extend across two weeks of podcasts, as we're now within range of not one, but two live Showtime boxing cards just a few days apart in February. Yep, this is the pattern the Showtime boxing calendar is following in 2021. A Wednesday Showbox card followed by a Saturday Showtime Championship boxing card. The SCB card in the works for Saturday, February 20th has not yet been officially announced, uh, although multiple sources, including our upcoming guest Keith Eidek, have reported the main event of Adrian Broner versus Giovanni Santiago at Junior Welterweight or thereabout, it is Adrian Broner after all, uh, along with two additional televised bouts, one in that same junior welterweight division and one at heavyweight. But because those fights aren't 100% official yet, as of this podcast recording, we will focus this week on the Showbox quadruple header scheduled for Wednesday, February 17th at the Fight Sphere at Mohegan Sun, promoted by Salida Promotions. Four fights at lightweight, welterweight, middleweight, and super middleweight, Eight boxers with a combined record of 119, 4, and 1. Five of the eight with zeros at the end of their records. Uh, so one O must go. Three other O's might go. Uh, and let's look first at the main event. Ten rounds in the welterweight division. My favorite name in all of boxing. Let me take a deep <laughs> breath and maximize the experience of saying it. Janelson Figueroa Boca Chica. Versus oh, versus Mark Reyes Jr., who I feel bad for having uh, his name up against uh, Janelson Figueroa Boca Chica. Uh, <laughs> both fighters are coming off of first round knockout wins. Boca Chica over Nicholas Flaz on Showtime in October to run his record to 16-0 and with 11 KOs while Reyes stopped Diego Perez in 47 seconds in November to advance to 14-0 and with 12 KOs. We're familiar with Boca Chica, not so familiar with Reyes. So, Kieran, can you tell the audience a little something about Reyes, and from what you've seen, how big a threat is he to take Boca Chica's O rather than lose his own? From what I've seen of him, Reyes can fight. Hmm. Um, and, and I say fight uh, rather than box deliberately. I mean, he does have appear to have pretty good fundamentals. He cuts off the ring quite well. He does have that almost Canelo-esque ability to sort of stand in the pocket and slip punches with, with some really good upper body movement. Um, but he isn't, doesn't look like he's the kind of guy who's going in there looking to outpoint you. He, he wants to get in close. He wants to rip you with sharp, short, hooking punches. He's got a very nice looking left hook, a thunderous right hand. Uh, he's a good finisher. Um, you mentioned his 47-second KO. Uh, I've seen footage of him scoring a one-punch 19-second KO. Hmm. Um, not not well, against Jose Canseco? <laughs> not against Jose Canseco. Um, the one thing I don't know about him, because I just haven't seen it one way or the other, is what happens if you're able to keep him at the end of a long jab and, and good straight punches because his appears to be very much an inside game he is looking to get inside he's 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 pretty squat he's solid he's going to try and get inside um and and work you over and i don't know if he can do that from the outside or not i don't know if he can fight his way in past a, a long jab or if he can box from the outside um and you figure that has to be the strategy of the guy he's facing what's what's the name of the guy he's facing again <laughs> funny you should ask uh let me see it's uh janelson figueroa boca chica Okay. Well, I think uh, I think he's actually potentially a very real threat. Uh, I think it's going to be a very interesting fight. I think it, it, it has the potential to be a very exciting fight indeed. Reyes looks. It's always hard to tell, isn't it, when you're when you're sort of evaluating these showbox fighters because you have to 
also weigh in the quality of the opposition they've they faced to this point. Right. But from what I've seen, dudes can definitely fight. I think this is a very real, real fight in the main event. All right. Um, all right. The co-feature, also a 10-rounder, uh, gives us another look at a familiar showbox name and face, super middleweight Vladimir Shishkin of Russia. He's 11-0 with seven KOs. He meets Ghana's Sena Agbeko, who brings a lot of experience to the table for a showbox fighter at 23-1 and with 18 KOs. So, similar question for you here. Uh, since we're familiar with Shishkin, but less so with his opponent, what do you know about Agbeko and how dangerous is he in terms of Shishkin's perfect record? So Agbeko is from Accra, as it seems all good boxers from Ghana yeah. are. Uh, he had a decent amateur career, not quite as notable as Shishkin's, but he had 69 amateur fights. He turned pro at 19. He's now 28. His first 15 pro fights were all in Ghana, and he won them all by knockout. But his first fight outside Ghana in the U.S. in 2014 didn't go so well. He got stopped in four rounds by Raymond Gatika as part of an ESPN Boxino tournament. He's since bounced back with eight wins in a row, but only three KOs and not against a great caliber of opposition. Six sub-500 opponents, and the only name you'd recognize above 500 is washed Brian Vera in 2018. He has sparred with some top opposition, though. Badu Jack, Brandon Adams, and Caleb Plant. And there's a clip on YouTube of him scoring a knockdown on Plant in the gym. Not the cleanest knockdown, but still, it would probably have been ruled a knockdown in a fight. Uh, still, I think Shishkin is a pretty clear favorite here. We've seen Shishkin twice now. He has an excellent outside game, a good one-two. I noted after his last fight, there's maybe a little poor man's Dimitri Bivol there. We still haven't seen him fight inside much, so maybe that's Agbeko's chance. Get inside, rough him up, see how Shishkin handles it. Uh, Shishkin is working with a new trainer, LJ Harrison, so that'll be interesting to see how that partnership goes. Uh, but I do think Agbeko's quality of opposition is telling. He's the one taking the big leap in class here. He's not a pushover, but at the same time, I don't see much chance of him being the guy to take Shishkin's O. Uh, the other two fights on the card are eight-rounders. Uh, let's talk about them both quickly. Uh, again, we have a showbox returnee here in the lightweight bout, Alejandro Porkchop Guerrero, who is 12-0. With nine KOs, he's taking on Abraham Montoya, the only multiple-loss fighter on the card. Still a strong record, though, at 19-2-1 with 14 knockouts. And in the show opener, eight rounds at middleweight, we have Timur Karafov, who, like Shishkin, is originally from Russia but fights out of Detroit. He's 9-0 with four knockouts. He faces Argenis Espana of Venezuela, who is 15-1 with 14 KOs. Either of these fights or any of these four fighters standing out to you and grabbing your attention, Kieran? I'm interested in taking a look at Karafov. Um, he had a you know, terrific amateur record, 298 and 12. Um, as you mentioned, he's, he's 9-0 with four KOs now. It is notable that um, when Salida signed him, he was 6-0 with four KOs, and his last three fights have all gone the eight-round distance. Um, he is 30 years old. Um, he turned pro late, so time isn't necessarily on his side. Um, but, of course, we're seeing this a lot now with, with fighters from the former Soviet Union, you know, lengthy and successful amateur careers and, and turning pro late. You mentioned he's training out of Detroit. Uh, and that's with Sugar Hill Stewart. Interestingly, Stewart says that his charge is, quote, one of the best middleweights in the world right now. 
Now, it could be that Sugar Hill is engaging in Freddie Roach hyperbole, (laughs) which is entirely possible. Um, But we'll get an opportunity to judge for ourselves. And I'm looking forward to seeing if he can join the ranks of Russians and, for that matter, Ukrainians and Uzbeks and Kazakhs who have these long and deep amateur uh, careers, uh, turn pro late, and often are, are pretty good. You know, they, they have very good technical skills. Um, a lot of them are real tough. As Stuart says, they're all, they all come over here and they're all real hard workers. They train well. So that's sort of been the uh, one of the sort of subplots of the boxing world over the last few years. And I'm very interested to see where Karafov may or may not fit into that. All right. Um, and uh, I, I noticed uh, an interesting quote uh, from the other fight, uh, Alejandro Porkchop Guerrero. I just want to mention this, that uh, he said, I know nothing about my opponent, but I've watched one clip of him and that's all I needed to see to know he will go down. <laughs> that must be one revealing clip that he found of Montoya. <laughs> Seriously. All right. Well, uh, more preview conversation to come next week including our picks in the Boca Chica Reyes main event and an excuse for me to say Janelson Figueroa Boca Chica a couple more times. <laughs> All right. Um, it's news time. Uh, and we're going to do things a little differently this week. Uh, we're foregoing our new main event and undercard structure to talk just generally about boxing news and happenings. And we're going to do that with our guest who is an actual real boxing journalist, not like us two fakers. We've got somebody who actually knows what they're talking about for a change. So uh, that's an interesting development. And it is of course our friend boxing scenes, Keith Eidick. Keith, welcome back to the podcast. Well, I don't know if I'd go quite that far guys, but I appreciate the introduction. How are you guys doing? <laughs> Good. Don't right. worry, don't ever forget the bar is so low with us <laughs> that, that you easily clear it. Well, I appreciate that. How you guys been? Eh, not so bad. How about yourself? I'm doing well, thanks. Just you know, managing the snow here in New Jersey, as I'm sure you guys are as well. Exactly. Yep. In Vermont, you know, manage snow. Snow manages you. <laughs> Does Dracula live in Vermont? What, are, what voices well, are we doing? Well, it was meant to be my Yakov Smirnoff with a Vermont belt. Ah, <laughs> hmm. interesting. A 1984 reference is uh, welcomed on the podcast, I suppose. Huh? <laughs> yeah. See what I mean about that low bar? You know what I'm talking about now, don't you? <laughs> right. I do. I do. Yeah. All right. And uh, let's uh, uh, start with some, some depressing news. Uh, great way to start, right? So, um, there's the news is that the International Boxing Hall of Fame induction ceremony will not be taking place this year due to the current state of the pandemic. The halls decided to push it back to 2022. So now we're going to have three classes of inductees going in at once. Uh, I, I don't know if you've been to Canastota for an induction weekend, but Eric and I talk frequently about how special it is. And we're both pretty bummed by this news. We were looking forward to going last year. We were looking forward to going this year. Um, are you as bummed as we are? And are you at all surprised that Ed Brophy and, and, and folks would make that decision this far out? Uh, I'm a little surprised that they didn't wait a little longer. And I'm with you. I've been to the induction ceremonies before, you know, uh, been for a couple of days, actually. You know, it's a three day weekend generally with a lot of events centered around the induction ceremony itself. Uh, It's a special thing. If you're a real boxing fan, it's something that I would suggest you do, uh, you know, at least once in your life to get up there. Uh, It's unfortunate that they have to do this for a variety of reasons, mostly because the induction weekend is basically how the International Boxing Hall of Fame sustains itself financially. Yeah. And to have to basically cancel two of them in a row and roll three into one in 2022 uh, could be catastrophic for, for the organization, for, you know, for the Hall of Fame itself. I mean, 
it's it's terrible that they've had to do this, but understandable to some degree. I, I don't know how you fit three induction classes into one wow. induction ceremony. They might have to space it over the course of two days because, guys, how could you do that many speeches and give people the appropriate amount of time Particularly our friend Lou DeBella. I don't, you know, Lou's going to need a, an hour unto himself. I don't know how they're going to squeeze him in there. But, uh, but you really, all kidding aside, guys, you want to give people in what is one of the best moments of their lives, particularly if they're lifelong boxing people, which all of these guys are, you want to give them the appropriate amount of time for them and their families to really enjoy it. You don't want to rush people off the stage. I mean, you can't have people up there for 45 minutes either, but uh, I, th- I just think you'll have such a, a large group of people with the three induction classes combined into one and, and some real star power uh, among those three groups. I just think uh, you might have to do it over the course of two days, which might not turn out to be a bad idea. Maybe it gets more people up there for the 2022 uh, induction weekend. Maybe it could be beneficial in that sense, but uh, it, it's just unfortunate on a variety of levels. New CBS Sunday. You collect rewards, right? This is how I make my living. When something is lost, everyone's looking for something. He finds it. You strong swimmer? So-so. So-so. So-so's okay. Justin Hartley stars. How you survive, you make quick, smart decisions. If you never let panic take the wheel. Sounds cool. It is cool, actually. Very cool. Tracker. New Sunday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Jeremy Renner returns to Paramount Plus for a brand new season of the original hit series, Mayor of Kingstown. My job is to create a balance, avoid a war. From executive producer Taylor Sheridan, co-creator of Yellowstone. There's some new players in town, and they brought the flag. And Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day. I know it's always been a war zone, Mike, but this is next level. The mayor is back in business. Are you warning me? You're going to find out. Mayor of Kingstown, new season streaming June 2nd, exclusively on Paramount Plus. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that of sort of uh, doing multiple induction ceremonies and speeches within a single weekend. But yeah, I think they're going to have to. Uh, even even when it was going to be two classes, it, it seemed like a lot. So with three, yeah, they're they're probably going to have to get creative with the way they structure the weekend. Um, here's some better news. Uh, boxing is drawing strong ratings on TV, or at least it did uh, on one recent instance. Uh, the, the Caleb Bowl, Plant versus Truax. Uh, as you wrote on Boxing Scene, Keith, it, it averaged almost... 1.9 million viewers on Fox and peaked at slightly over 2 million. Uh, that's not bad, especially for a fight that didn't look competitive on paper and was indeed not competitive in the ring. What do you attribute the high rating to? Is Plant developing into a real attraction, or was this just about it being a Saturday night without too much competition in terms of live sports? I think it's a combination of those two things, Eric. Uh, you have to give Caleb Plant some credit for it because the other fights, most of which Fox has broadcast since the pandemic started, or you know, since they came back from the pandemic, um, have been gross mismatches. And this was also a mismatch, but he does have some recognition. He's a very talented fighter. Um, you know, Caleb Truax maybe three or four years ago would have given him a much better fight. Yeah. You know, the 2021 version of Caleb Plant against the 2017 version of Caleb Truax would have been obviously a better fight. But uh, I think Plant gets some credit for it. And it was a very encouraging sign because the the ratings for all sports across the board in terms of uh, Nielsen measuring those ratings have been down uh, since live sports have come back during the pandemic. Um, but boxing had been considerably down 
uh, even on Fox, which, as you guys know, is a broadcast network available in roughly 115 million homes in the United States. Uh, so it's almost by accident you would get a million viewers on average, just people having Fox on their televisions. But uh, for it to be o peak over 2 million and for the main event to average almost 1.9 million was a very encouraging sign. And hopefully that's the upward trend that we're looking at for 2021. Uh, I think, guys, what needs to be done on Fox more so is to put better fights on the network because you... I'm not saying you can put pay-per-view level fights necessarily on Fox with any regularity, but you could probably do that once a year uh, to generate more, you know, more viewership and give people something to look forward to who are regularly following the program on Fox. If you're just continually giving them uh, gross mismatches that should not happen, that's going to turn viewers off. And I think that's a lot of what we saw uh, in the ratings for their August shows, their early September show. Um, certainly their December show. I mean, th there is no reason for David Morrell Jr. and Mike Gravonsky maybe to even be on Fox, let alone be the main event. So, uh, you know, hopefully uh, we'll see some better fights here on Fox. You know, maybe some of the Jamel Charlo, Tony Harrison type of fights that they did within the first year of this Fox deal, mm -hmm. um, be be because that'll get the ratings up around where they were for the show and frankly where they should at least remain. Let's talk about the guy that Plant and everybody else at or around 168 pounds wants to fight, and that's Canelo Alvarez, obviously. Um, he's scheduled to face Avni Yildirim this month, and then in May, Billy Joe Saunders, who might be the number one heel in boxing, uh, especially after controversial comments he made on social media this week, added to the comments he's made on social media many other weeks, of course. Um, do you think Plant is in the mix after that? Uh, or do you think a third fight with Triple G might be more likely? Basically, how do you see the latter half of 2021 going for Canelo, assuming he wins against your Durham and Saunders? And, and do you think you'll see him move to another network from DAZN after he's dealt with those two fights? I think so, Kieran. I think that uh, his plan is, of course, to beat Yildirim, hope he comes out of it without any cuts or injuries. Right and then turn around very quickly to fight Billy Joe Saunders on May 8th. Billy Joe Saunders, Canelo, is is uh, an intriguing fight in the sense that I don't think Billy Joe Saunders can beat Canelo, but he has had problems with southpaws before, and I could see Billy Joe Saunders being uh, as smart as he is and as elusive as he is in the ring uh, with his ring generalship. Uh, he's a very good boxer, and I think he'll give Canelo some problems. I don't think he'll win. But I think Canelo gets through those two fights – and then, yes, I do see him fighting Caleb Plant in September. Mm -hmm. I just think at this point, unless they offer him so much money to fight Triple G a third time, that I just think he will walk away from that third fight. Now, they might do that. Uh, the, the people at the zone might do that. But I don't know. I think they've learned a, a lesson over the last year and a half or so in, in terms of not just throwing enormous sums of money at fights from which you're not going to get any return on your investment. And I think... Mm -hmm. As much as maybe some people want to see the third Triple G Canelo fight, it's if this is a common term that people use, it's past its expiration date because Triple G is 38 years old uh, or will soon be. Uh, you know, he, he they just feel he's past his prime, and Canelo would beat him rather convincingly in this third fight. And if you're DAZN, do you want to pay? Do you want to pay you know 45 million dollars to Canelo Alvarez to to go beat? the guy he's supposed to beat. I, I don't know 
what kind of sense that makes for them financially. So yes, I do see him fighting Caleb Plant, assuming he wins these two fights and it doesn't suffer any kind of injuries or anything. I, I would see him fighting Caleb Plant in mid-September around uh, Mexican Independence Day weekend. I don't think that Caleb Plant has a chance to beat Canelo Alvarez either. Um, good boxer. I just don't think he has the uh, power to keep Canelo yeah. off of him, to keep him from getting inside. But but that is a fight that people will want to see. Uh, it'll be a pay-per-view fight in, in September. And I think it would be the start of a multi-fight agreement between Canelo Alvarez, Al Heyman, PBC, uh I'm not a thousand percent sold that it's going to be with Fox. I, I do think Showtime is in play here uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, but I could see him, you know, agreeing to a three fight deal with PBC and Al Heyman that goes Caleb Plant, David Benavidez, Jamal Charlo, which is a very attractive three fight slate for Canelo. Um, of course, those are not all easy fights by any stretch, but I think that's how the end of 2021 and part of 2022, maybe all of 2022 plays out for Canelo Alvarez. Mm. That would be one heck of a run of, of opponents for Canelo, starting with starting with Saunders, which is a, a competitive fight uh, in theory. If, if he went through like those four in a row, counting Saunders. Wow, that is a serious that's gauntlet. A, and, that's and, a Hall of Fame career in a year, isn't it? <laughs> basically. And and I would say all three of those names you just threw out there, I kind of think they would all be more live right now against Canelo than Triple G would. I think you're right, Eric. And that's kind of, you know, he, he's going to want massive amounts of money for these fights. So he's going to have to be challenged. I mean, there aren't going to be, I understand why DAZN did what it did here with this Yildirim fight completely get it. He's obligated to do it. It was part of the deal for the WBC to sanction the Callum Smith fight for the title. The winner had to fight Yildirim next, who's been the mandatory for quite some time. So I understand that. Um, but there are going to be, if he comes to PBC and, and in a multi-fight uh, deal, I, I can't see any Yildirim fights being part of that because they, you know, they want to see him fight top-level guys, particularly if the fights are going to be on pay-per-view. Now, if they were to do it with Fox and they were to bring one of those fights to Fox just to see – now, it's a very expensive fight to do on, on network television. I completely understand that. But if they were to do one on Fox, he would fight someone, I think, on the level of Yildirim because – between the money you're going to have to pay Canelo and his opponent, you need the opponent's money to be such that, you know, it, it doesn't really cost that much. So I would see him if, if that is part of the deal where they slip a broadcast television fight or perhaps a fight on Showtime um, on those either of those networks, he, there might be one lower level fight in between there. But that is a very ambitious schedule. I realize that. But I think that's uh, kind of the way he's looking at it. Right. All right. So so the the Canelo Saunders one, though, assuming he gets past Yildirim, that that one is on the schedule. And and one piece of good news uh, that we got is that it apparently will not be competing with the excellent 140 pound fight between Josh Taylor and Jose Ramirez. It it looked like they were both headed for May 8th, but now Taylor Ramirez seems to be moving to a different weekend in May. What's your take, Keith, on boxing's tendency to counter-program itself. Is it important for the networks and promoters to work to avoid this? Or in the DVR and streaming age, is it kind of a big old who cares and, and everyone can just watch everything on their own timetable? Well, you certainly don't want the fights happening live simultaneously. I mean, that's just a, a lose-lose for boxing fans 
who frankly have to deal with enough nonsense as it is so you don't have to you know make fights on the same night and, it, and it's just bad business for both sides because if you're taking away part, part any fraction of what is already a relatively small audience it just doesn't make much sense I didn't think there was any way when this all started circulating last week that they were going to do these fights on the same night, uh, primarily because Bob Arum has said all along that uh, the Ramirez-Taylor fight would not take place until they could have what he said was a substantial amount of fans in the stands uh, for that fight because they needed the gate revenue to, to help offset the costs. And I don't think three months from now there will be a substantial amount of fans in the stands anywhere in the United States. So... I don't think they could have, you know, started scheduling that fight next month for for two months thereafter, uh, and expect and had expected to have fans in the stands. So I didn't quite believe it at the time. It just seemed like a lot of hubbub about nothing, basically. But um, but it's not out of the realm of possibility either, because it has happened multiple times. Because well, boxing is boxing, right, guys? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and 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 Texas is Texas uh, in, ter- exactly. in, ter- in terms of in terms of whether they put that fight on in front of fans at least. That, that's true, too. I mean, they, they, for some reason, took one month off in Texas. I don't really know what that's supposed to do, accomplish, but, you know, they've been having fights there all along, and then they took off the month of February, and then are just going full steam ahead in March with multiple fights. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, you know, having been to Texas for multiple fight weeks uh, during the pandemic, I, I don't know what they're doing down there exactly, and uh, I just hope when I go there I don't come back. Sick. Right. I, right. I, I was going to. I was going to say. So it, it hasn't been your experience that uh, the reason they're staging these fights in Texas is because there's no COVID there. That is not the case. No, it's because <laughs> right. they'll pretty much allow what, whatever you want to do. They will pretty much allow it. It seems right. so. Right. Um, want to get your take on the gentleman who is headlining the next Showtime Championship Boxing Show, Adrian Bronner? Uh, you wrote this week about his appearance on Brian Custer's podcast, uh, where Bronner insists that he's still young at 31. He isn't past his prime. Um, Eric and I have discussed his claims of having quit drinking, training more seriously, and we sort of almost kind of maybe reluctantly been convinced to give him one last chance. Um, what's your take on all of this? Do you think he <laughs> might actually have another good run in him, or are we about to fall for the same old thing? Are we are we Charlie Brown in the football here? Is he Lucy? What's going on here? Uh, I don't know when the first good run was, but <laughs> right. that's, good point. that's just me. Um, Adrian Broner is 31, so theoretically he's in his physical prime, but he hasn't exactly lived uh, a Floyd Mayweather-like life outside of the ring where he's preserved his body. You know, guys like Bernard Hopkins and Floyd were able to fight, you know, uh, particularly Bernard was able to fight very late into his life, way past his physical prime because he took care of himself outside of the ring. Adrian Broner has not done that, and he's been very open about his struggles with alcohol and depression and a lot of other things, which you know, make you sympathize with him as a human being. But as far as him as a boxer, I don't know how much, how many more times, as you guys said, it's like Lucy with the football. How many more times are you going to listen to a person say, or a boxer say, I'm going to let my hands go. I'm going to train hard. I'm going to do this. It's the same story every time that Adrian Broner, the, the best way to boil this down is going into this fight with Giovanni Santiago Adrian Broner has not convincingly won a fight in almost five years. Yeah. Five years. And, okay, he's been off for the last two years, so he couldn't have won a fight in those two years. But he has not won a fight impressively, convincingly, however you want to phrase it, 
since April of 2016. That's well wow. before Donald Trump was president. That's a very long time ago. Wait, right? Donald so, Trump was president? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but he, you know, he beat Adrian Granados in, in February of 2017. So he'll basically be fighting four years after that when he appears on Showtime February 20th. He won't have officially won a fight in four years. And there are a lot of people that think Granados did enough to beat him in that fight. Worst case, it was a very close fight that seemingly could have gone either way. And then the Theophane fight was 10 months before that. So at what point do you just say, look, he's a polarizing guy. Typically, he brings eyeballs to the televisions, computer screens, however you're watching boxing now. So I think this will be the ultimate test of how much quote-unquote star power or whatever Adrian Broner has that attracts people to him that he has left because he's fighting someone that most American boxing fans, I've only seen YouTube clips. I've never seen Giovanni Santiago fight in a a real fight at live. So I've assumed most most boxing fans have not seen him. He is undefeated, but he's fought a relatively low level of opposition, particularly in comparison to Broner. So he's fighting an undefeated but unknown opponent. He hasn't won a fight, as I reiterate, convincingly in almost five years. He hasn't fought in more than two years. He was completely non-competitive against Manny Pacquiao in his last fight. Look, if people continue, and this is what the hope of Showtime and Steven Espinosa, who still, they still believe in Adrian Broner's star power, and frankly, they should because he continues. When he's on the network, more people watch. That's indisputable. That's the one thing about Adrian Broner that makes him very valuable is that people continue to tune in to watch him. But I do think that this will be the ultimate test if that if whatever he has that makes people come back to watch if he still has it, because there are so many things about this fight that should make people not really care all that much. And oh, going back to to Eric's original point a few minutes ago, there is another Excellent, excellent fight on the same night on ESPN between Bruchelt and Oscar Valdez, literally on at the same time. Yeah, right. yeah, that's a that's a challenge uh, right there. Um, well, you, you mentioned the guy who's on the opposite end of the hard work dedication spectrum from Broner, uh, Floyd Mayweather. <laughs> um, as Kieran and I touched on last week, uh, his exhibition with with Logan Paul has been postponed. Uh, but this week, Floyd was talking about three exhibitions this year against both Paul brothers and against 50 cent Um, as a serious respected member of the boxing media. uh, Even, even if you may protest that, uh, that uh, distinction, like you did when Kieran introduced you, um, how how do you feel Keith about covering this stuff? Is it fun for you as a reporter and writer to mix it up and to have a circus fight to talk about from time to time? Or would you just as soon ignore these exhibitions? No, I don't like it. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, what I what I will say is that it generates these types of events. While I personally don't like covering them because it's, you know, you want to cover real fights. You want to cover fights that are leading to real fights. Uh, follow the narrative or career arcs of people who actually have a future in boxing. I mean, as as you said, as you know, like, as a serious journalist or as a person who cares about the future of the sport, that's what you would prefer to cover. But what I will say is when we write about people like Jake Paul and uh, Logan Paul and, you know, we don't write about 50 Cent all that much on boxing scene, (laughs) but people read it. 
people react to it. So look, part of our business model, the biggest part of our business model is we want, you know, there are things that are quote unquote clickbait Mm -hmm. and that you, if you had your preference, you would not post on the site. And I'm by no means are, I'm trying to make BoxingScene.com the New York Times. But what, I, what I'm saying is there are things that you would just prefer not to put on there. But if people are reacting to it and it's related to boxing, well, then it's good for business ultimately because your numbers are higher and your advertising revenue is, is based on your, you know, your page views and everything. So, look, we have to do it. I, I understand that. And we have multiple writers on the site. And some of them like writing about these types of events certainly more than I do. And I give them free reign to do that because <laughs> I would prefer to avoid it. Right. <laughs> but but people are interested. In, you know, I would have I was I'll say this. I was completely wrong uh, in underestimating how many people were going to want to watch Mike Tyson at 54 years old fight Roy <laughs> yeah. Jones at yeah. 51 years old. It did one point six ish million pay-per-view buys. Uh, The biggest non-heavyweight fight that you could make in boxing right now is Errol Spence and Terrence Crawford. Every boxing fan wants to see that fight. And I promise you if they make that fight, it will do nowhere near 1.6 million pay-per-view buys. So, look, we might not like it, but these types of events are here to stay while they continue generating real business uh, among boxing fans, casual fans, and whomever – until it's until it ceases to make money that they're going to keep doing it and then when you have a you know the the biggest money maker in the history of the sport and floyd mayweather uh you know fighting whoever you know whether it's logan paul jake i, I don't know how you could sanction a fight uh, and even an exhibition between floyd mayweather and 50 cent i mean 50 cent is nowhere near floyd mayweather's weight he's i don't know how old he is now he's pretty old uh i'm sure if you ran into 50 50- set in the street it would be a tough fight and everything but i don't know how you would sanction that in any capacity but right uh, but 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 who if they were let for argument's sake let's say they did 50 cent against floyd mayweather who's not tuning in for that yeah, <laughs> yeah. right right it's like almost like the 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 paul brothers i can kind of ignore because i still that's not my generation i don't really know what, who, who they are and what it is that makes them famous. 50 Cent, I remember, you know, he and his friendship with Floyd on the old 24-7s. There's a little bit of intrigue there for me. Uh, not not really in terms of the athletic competition, but just sort of the feud and the history. I think that's more likely to hook me personally and than, than either of the Paul brothers. Yeah, I think you're right, Eric. And it's, you know, 50 Cent is such an enormous uh, mainstream star. And then Floyd, and, you know, and, and you have all this background between them, all this contentious stuff that's had. They were friends and now they're enemies. And I don't even know how much of it is true, really. I don't know if they really do hate each other or what. But uh, but they've certainly sold the public on the fact that they hate each other now. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, but but I mean, but where are we where, where this is what we're, t- you know, unfortunately, <laughs> yep. it's a it's a it's a poor reflection on the sport that we're immersed in. Um <laughs> That this is the type of thing that will generate. Now, that's that's an anomaly unto itself. Floyd Mayweather and Fifty Cent. I I, I get that. But the Paul brothers, you know, Jake Paul. Look, the, he he seems to be training in boxing and taking it relatively seriously. Um, but you know, Nate Robinson had never boxed before, and from what I was led to believe, really didn't train all that hard, mm. and then just went in there and thought that it would go well. I, I don't, you know. I don't know why he thought that exactly, and it certainly did not go well. Um, but hey, look, I mean, it, again, 
as long as people are willing to buy these things, they're going to be sanctioned as exhibitions, you know, within reason, of course, uh, the weight differential, I don't quite understand because, you know, even as a, one thing that I think some people might not understand, I know you guys certainly do, but, you know, from the outside looking in, if you don't know anything about it, they probably think you could just throw any two people you want in there and just do whatever you want. You can't do that. Even exhibitions have to, have to have oversight from the commissions in the states in which these events take place. So you can't just, you know, throw a 150 pound guy in there with a 220 pound guy just because you think it's, you know, goofy enough for people to watch it, you know. Right. right. Um, so one circus fight we seem to have dodged, and I don't ever know how serious, don't know how serious it ever was. But uh, Manny Pacquiao versus Conor McGregor seems to be off the table. Thank heavens. Uh, instead, there's been talk in the last couple of weeks about Pacquiao against Ryan Garcia, which is far from a circus fight. Um, do you think or have you gotten a sense from your reporting that there's really something there or is this something that a couple of sides are floating and probably won't go anywhere? Or do you think we'll see this? I don't. I do think there's serious interest on both sides, but I also think that the type of money that they want is not available for the fight. And, you know, they've been talking about investors internationally coming up with the money I don't know that it's a particularly good idea for Ryan Garcia to move up two weight classes, even though Manny Pacquiao is 42 years old. That's not an easy fight by any stretch. And I just think he would be better served. Now, maybe not financially, and and that's what this is about, of course, but, but he would be better served if he were to fight one of his lightweight rivals, while I don't think any of those fights will happen next. In my opinion, Ryan Garcia is not going to fight. Let's just say the Pacquiao thing falls apart, which it seems to be in the process of of happening. Um, I don't think he's going to fight Devin Haney next. I don't think he's going to fight uh, Javante Davis next. And I don't think that he's certainly not going to fight Tiafimo Lopez next. I do. I, I think that Garcia coming off the big win against Luke Campbell probably would fight Jorge Linares, who he was supposed to fight even before he fought Luke Campbell. And then of course that was supposed to happen last July and the pandemic uh, ruined those plans. That's who, if I had to bet my own money on it, that's who I, I think he will fight next, Jorge Linares, because it's somewhat sellable. Um, Linares is a great offensive fighter. Of course, he's been stopped five times, but um, but I think they'll get away with that to an extent mm. next, and then revisit maybe Gervonta Davis from there, because that's probably the biggest fight that they could make of the uh, lightweights that I mentioned. Um, I don't know that he would necessarily win that fight, but it, it would be a big event because of Gervonta's growing star power and uh, obviously the the star power that Garcia has. Right. We've had Javante's uh, coach on here, and we can tell you that's the fight that they want. That's for damn sure. They look <laughs> yeah. at those dollar signs. Yeah, and, and who wouldn't, right? I mean, and it, I think it's important. I would like to see that happen next, and I know there's some hope uh, on Javante Davis's side that that's realistic to happen next. I hope it does because that's, that's a good fight that, you know, they're both – Javante Davis is 26, Ryan Garcia is 22 – uh, both coming off great wins. Uh, it would be a perfect time for that fight to happen. Having said that, again, boxing being boxing, it being the perfect time for it to happen probably means that it won't. Right. right. Yep. <laughs> All right. Last topic, uh, Keith, you're you're a Jersey guy. Uh, you've had a front row seat for much of the career of Sergey Kovalev. In the wake of his positive PED tests, is he finished as a fighter of any significance? And and where does this leave his New Jersey-based promoter main events? I think we'll see Sergey Kovalev in the ring again. Um, 
I don't know physically what he has left. The, the, the positive drug test aside, the positive PED test aside, I don't know what he has left now because he was – the one thing I will say though is he was very, very competitive with Canelo Alvarez whom a lot of people consider the, the best fighter pound for pound in the sport. Right. He was very competitive with him in the last fight before he got knocked out, but he was viciously knocked unconscious again in that fight. And that's he's been knocked out multiple times now. I just don't know what he has left physically – and he, uh, uh, to put it mildly, does not live a, uh, a normal life outside of the ring and uh, has done a lot of damage to his body. Uh, now using PEDs will do more damage to your body. So I don't, I do think we'll see him fight again just because uh, he still has some name recognition. He'll say, I made a mistake and, or, or maybe he'll just ignore it. I don't know. But, um, you know, he's an older guy trying to get an edge. And, and look, if he serves his suspension or whatever comes of this, he'll be allowed to fight again. I mean, Canelo was suspended for six months, and now mm-hmm. that, for some reason or another, has been all but forgotten. He, right. did, he did fail a PED test and was suspended for six months. But So, so I guess the short answer, guys, is I do think uh, Sergey Kovalev will fight again. I don't know what this does to the the contractual commitment that Bazone – has with him because they did owe him a fight for a substantial amount of money. He was supposed to make over $2 million for this fight in January on January 30th. That was canceled. Wow. Um, I know their, their plan was to have him fight Canelo, uh, take a fight against what they considered a reasonable opponent in the second fight. This was originally the plan. And then in the third fight, fight Dimitri Bivol. Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily the case anymore. Uh, but and I don't know if they still owe him that two plus million dollar purse because he failed this drug test, but probably not. But, um, but I do. The, he will fight again, um, and and his promoter main events will stick. You know, will stick by him. I mean, they've been through a lot of things with Sergey. They've been. Uh, he's obviously been um, very beneficial to the company over the last few years. He's been their their flagship fighter, and uh, and will continue to be to be that. For the uh, in the short term, anyway, for how many ever more times he winds up fighting. Right, but what about? I mean, anybody who's involved in boxing loves Kathy Duva, loves main events. But it, you know, when he's gone, whether that be sooner or later, where does that leave them? Uh, they've, I mean, really, he's been the guy who's been carrying them, and they've been carrying him, obviously, over the last several years. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I'm. Unless one of the other fighters that they have under contract wins a championship, I mean, they wouldn't have much leverage uh, in the business. And, and as you said, Kovalev has really helped the company sustain itself over the last few years. He made an, an enormous amount of money uh, to fight Sir, uh, Canelo Alvarez. His, the total compensation package was uh, between 12 and $13 million. Um, so, you know, that, that's obviously helped keep the company afloat. I know uh, Kathy wants to keep the company open. She's... You know, there have been points where um, where it seemed like main events was going to close up shop. Uh, but to their credit, they've always found a f- and, and more often than not, I, mean, I think every time, really, there's it's been one fighter right. who has mm-hmm. gone on a run to help keep the company open. I mean, unfortunately for main events, there was a point in the 2006, seven, eight range when all of their fighters and they still had some very high profile fighters back then. I mean, they had Arturo Gatti. They had uh, Fernando Vargas, uh, guys who were still fighting for substantial purses, but they kept losing fights. So they went on a run where they lost a lot of fights, and it looked like you didn't know if the company was going to stay afloat. And then Tomas Adamek became 
you know, a world champion in multiple in, uh, in the light heavyweight division, cruiserweight division, and he became a big ticket seller in northern New Jersey at the Prudential Center here in Newark. And then they and then while his run was coming toward an end, when he eventually fought for a heavyweight championship, um, then Sergey Kovalev came along. So they're in. Is there another guy that they have who can go on a run to help the company sustain itself uh, for as long as they have since 2007, 2008? I don't know, but uh, they have had a, a, a tendency to find those types of guys. Now, having to continue to do that is, is tricky business, but um, but they've had success going that way before. Yeah. All right. Hey, look, man, thanks so much, Keith. Uh, you not only cleared that low bar, you soared over it. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. I have a very low vertical leap, but uh, I was able to get up over it, I guess. You know? but uh, I appreciate it, guys. Always fun to be on with you guys. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Keith. Really appreciate it. All right, have a good one. You too. All right. Great stuff there. Thanks again to Keith. That was uh, really good talking to him. Uh, all right. It is time for the tweet of the week, and it's my turn to pick it. And this might seem an odd choice to some. It is only tangentially connected to boxing. Uh, also, it might seem in poor taste, but that's rarely stopped me in the past. Uh, I just found this tweet to be humorously worded. Uh, and a warning, there is a bad word in here. So children in the car with your boxing podcast loving parents, earmuffs. Uh, the tweet is from... At high underscore light, uh, couldn't tell you anything about who this person is, although his or her bio suggests he or she mostly is into MMA. Uh, anyway, at high underscore light wrote on February 1st, RIP Dustin Diamond, who did some TV shows, but mostly beat the absolute fuck out of a 50-year-old on celebrity boxing, which I will always respect. <laughs> that's it that's the tweet uh the actor who played screech on saved by the bell died it was big news and this person's mind went straight to him beating up horshack uh who was twice dustin diamond's age <laughs> quote which he will always respect uh so uh kieran thoughts on the tweet wow. uh on dustin diamond on saved by the bell or have you at least reached out to noted saved by the bell super fan brian campbell to offer condolences you know, I did actually think about doing that, but I thought um, it might have been a little bit too soon. And, okay. And uh, want to give him some time, a little bit of time yeah. to himself <laughs> to kind of work through it. So I've been meaning to reach out to him to see if um, he's been watching the not the reboot, is it, but the sort of revisit right. that's streaming on Peacock, which which still features Marion Lopez and Elizabeth Berkley <laughs> and, and a new cast. I like your revenge there. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. It's a dish best served cold, you know. <laughs> I bet he's sorry now. Um, a lot of people listening have no idea what we're talking about, but that's okay. Um, no, wow. So there you go. That is that that shows. I think we can have a pretty good guess at how old High Underscore Light is. If figures that Dustin Diamond's greatest achievement or most notable achievement was that very very late career celebrity boxing fight with Horshack. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the thing. So there you go. See, this is why they do it, because, you know, it's a, it's a whole new jolt of fame. <laughs> yes, I guess so. Kept kept his name in the news a little. And look, it, it went a lot better for Dustin Diamond than it did for the guy who plays Horshack. Indeed. Yes, indeed. All right. Uh, well, there, there's one big news item from this weekend that we didn't cover with Keith. Uh, and 
I don't I don't want to say on a more serious note as we transition to it, because that would suggest we're not taking the passing of Dustin Diamond seriously. Uh, but it, it is another death and it's least at least a much bigger deal in the boxing world. Uh, there was uh, news of a major death on Friday night. Uh, we were sad to learn that former heavyweight champion Leon Spinks died after a long battle with cancer at the age of 67. Spinks is, of course, best known for upsetting Muhammad Ali for the heavyweight title in 1978. He was also a gold medalist on the famed 1976 U.S. Olympic team, as was his brother Michael. And though Leon's time at the top was brief and he didn't make the International Boxing Hall of Fame, uh, he was inducted into the Nevada Boxing Hall of Fame four years ago. He was a colorful character known for his big, toothless smile. Uh, also, part of his legacy is that one of his sons, Corey, went on to become a world champion. I read an outstanding book about the Sphinx Brothers several years ago by John Florio and Weezy Shapiro titled One Punch from the Promised Land, uh, told their story in great depth. Uh, they, they truly came from nothing and made it to the top. I highly recommend it for anyone looking to learn more about the Sphinx Brothers. Uh, Kieran, any thoughts to share on Leon Sphinx? Well, I've never met Leon Spinks to my own recollection, uh, and obviously never covered any of his fights. But the the story always seemed, uh, maybe it's covered in this book that you mentioned, but his story always seemed such a sad one, really. And I I, I was never sure whether, you know, you know, we talked when we when we came up with my list of of fighters who didn't quite work out, right? Um, you, you know, a while back, we even speculated, do do you include Leon Spinks in that? Because there he was, seven and zero, and an Olympic gold medalist, and he'd beaten Muhammad Ali. And you would think that the career ahead of him would have been a great one, and it didn't pan out that way. And and I know he struggled a lot right. with a lot of different issues, and um, over many years, uh, even before the cancer took him. And I don't know. I got the impression that he always seemed to have be extraordinarily good humored through it all. But it did it did always seem to be, especially when you contrast him with. With his brother Michael, the, a sad story in, in how it all worked out, really. Leon Spinks, but um, you know, I hope you know he's at some kind of peace now. Yeah. All right. Um, we are, as we have, you've no doubt figured out, and as we've mentioned several times, we are coming off a week in which there were no fights worth discussing. Uh, but that will not be the case this coming weekend. Uh, let's talk about a few fights on DAZN and ESPN on Saturday, February 13th. Uh, there are two DAZN cards, one from London with Josh Warrington defending his featherweight belt against Mauricio Lara, and then later in the day from Indio, California, a deep card, uh, Jojo Diaz against Shavkatzan Rachimov at 130 pounds, Patrick Teixeira against Brian Castaño at 154, plus Ronnie Rios against Oscar Negrete. Uh, anything you're looking forward to there? Pretty devious of me to set up the outline for this week to make sure that you had to try to pronounce Rocky Mob's first name. I never have to say it. Uh, the, the the California card is uh, pretty solid. I, I haven't seen Rocky Mob, whose first name I will never say. Uh, at least not that I don't remember seeing him, but he is gathering some buzz. There's talk of this being a 50-50-ish fight. Not the case with Warrington, on whom you have to bet $20 to win $1. Uh, but I think the fight that most has my attention is Teixeira versus Castaño, in part because Jermel Charlo is talking about wanting to fully unify at 154 pounds, and Teixeira has the only other belt there. Charlo Teixeira doesn't do much for me, 
but I think Charlo Castaño is a more interesting fight. Uh, Castaño is a solid favorite here to beat Teixeira. He's minus 400. Teixeira is a plus 275 underdog. I think this is a good style matchup, and you know maybe the winner moves on to fight Jermel, so that makes it somewhat mm. significant. Uh, how about you? Anything uh, you like on these cards? Yeah, I'm really interested in Diaz Rachimov. Um, it's it's weird, isn't it, the Jojo Diaz situation? I, I you know, he's still his only loss is, is to Gary Russell Jr., but it feels as if he's gone since then from being hyped and heavily promoted and 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 having real things expected of him to almost being lost in the shuffle. And and, and I know that he's not happy about it. He's very passive aggressive slash borderline straight up aggressive about it with regard to his promoters on, on social media. Um, you know, it feels like he's almost been written off and forgotten, but he's still only 28. Um, last time out, we put on an excellent performance to beat Tevin Farmer. Um, but like yourself, I have seen very little of Rahimov, but what I have seen, it looks like he is the real deal. Um, I mean, he splattered uh, Robinson Castellanos, I think, last time out uh, in a couple of rounds, which is which is a good yardstick. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, you know, if Diaz does beat him, then we really need to be paying attention to him once more as a legitimate, real force in that 130-pound division. But from what I can tell, it looks like a very, very high-risk fight against someone who has been mowing down opponents. So I'm I'm very curious to see how this fight pays out. All right. Uh, the other card of note uh, is a top-rank ESPN card from Las Vegas, headlined by a light heavyweight bout between Joe Smith Jr. and Maxim Vlasov, and a pretty decent co-feature, lightweights Richard Comey taking on the man we thought beat Raleigh Romero last year, Jackson Mourinhez. Uh, any interest, Kieran, in that Comey Mourinho's fight? And where would a win position Joe Smith at 175? Yeah, I'm interested in that Comey Mourinho's fight. I mean, Comey had a nice run going until he ran into Teofimo Lopez a couple of years back. Um, we haven't seen him in the ring since then. So it'll be interesting to see where he's at. I, I suspect that actually taking a very long break after being just blattered the way he was by Teofimo um, probably isn't a bad thing, actually. Yeah. Um, and and this also gives Marinas an opportunity to sort of show, you know, how good he is, remind people of why he was in the eyes of all but three people um, able to beat Romero. Um, so, yeah, I am I am intrigued about that. I think that'll be an interesting one. But I just I, I can't say enough about Joe Smith. You know, I mean, after he lost to Sullivan Barrera, albeit he got a broken, had a broken jaw in that right. fight and Dimitri Bivol, it, it seemed as if. He was shaping up to be one of those guys who was good enough to earn shots at the top guys, but not good enough to make anything of those shots. Um, but now he's beaten Jesse Hart and Elide Alvarez in back-to-back bouts. He's clearly one of the top three or four light heavies in the world right now. Uh, the problem for him, if there is one, it's a good isn't it's a good problem to have in the that hasn't been a lot of new blood at the top of that division. So mm. if he gets past glass off on on saturday then he, he's still looking at the guys ahead of him are guys like bivol who's already fought and lost right. to and Artur Betterbiev. um and look i wouldn't give him a chance much chance against Betterbiev, but that's because of Betterbiev, not because of joe smith jr um but maybe that's that's the fight to be made for him alternatively there are still plenty of names for him to defend his belt against if he gets past vlasov and that by the way is very far from a given um vlasov can seriously fight uh, and, and if he winds up victorious, he's suddenly in play very much at the top of that 175 pound division. It's interesting. It's getting a, it's been a very good division for a while. It's starting to stagnate a little bit underneath better BF, but in, in a way of lasso fight would kind of shake things, uh, win would kind of shake things up a little bit. But the other thing I got to say about Joe Smith Jr. 
when I he was a terrible interview. Um, <laughs> okay. And when I interviewed him for the Bernard Hopkins fight, right. it was one of those interviews that was so bad we didn't even try to use it. And then by the time the Sullivan Barrera fight came along, he'd obviously like worked on it a little bit more because he's just a normal guy, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and by the time we came to the Sullivan Barrera fight, he was actually getting pretty good. And I obviously haven't interviewed him for this fight, but I've seen several people post that, oh man, just had a great interview with Joe Smith Jr. So I'm really glad that he's getting that side of the game right as well. Uh, as well as doing really well in, in, inside the ring. He's just a good, honest, kind of, you know, lunch pail fighter kind of guy. So good luck to him. Yeah, and I have to say, I'm a little more interested in the possibility of, of him against Better Biev than you are. Certainly him against Bivol, we've seen it. We don't need to run that one back. But, you know, if I can't have my dream fight, Canelo versus right. Better Biev, I'll take Better Biev and Joe Smith. I, I think there's some violence right there, whatever, whatever. It might not end well for Joe Smith, but then again, it might not end well for Better Biev. Indeed. Yeah. And I, I certainly didn't mean to make it sound like I was dismissing. Like I've watched right. the hell out of that. Fight. Right. <laughs> and, 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 um, and Smith, he's a tough guy. Right. So, you know, he's going to hang in there. Mm -hmm. So. So, yeah, absolutely. I'd make better be the favorite against pretty much anybody, not called Canelo. But right. yeah, no, I, I definitely watched that fight. All right. Uh, all right. Let's uh, close out the show with what is quickly becoming a lot of people's favorite segment, the top five. Last week, I tasked you with coming up with a list of the five classic fights that most people didn't see coming. Some out-of-nowhere, all-timer fights. So, Kieran, uh, take it away. Count them down. So, more than any of the lists we've done so far, and I suspect more than many of the ones I, I will do in the future, um, I present this list sort of with the caveat there's a certain arbitrariness about it all. Um, because every yes. year, there are a ton of good fights, right? And most years, there's a smattering of great ones. And not all of those fights are ones that are hyped or expected to be great. And frankly, we all watch so many fights that after a while, they kind of blur together. Right. Um, you could almost just pick five fights out of 20 years of Showbox, and that would fit this <laughs> yeah. category perfectly. So that's one caveat. The other caveat is that this is weighted very considerably to relatively recent times, um, partly because the last couple of years, for example, have thrown up a couple of excellent examples of the genre. And also because it's very hard to get a sense with the remove of history about how much a good fight was or was not anticipated if you weren't there for the buildup of it, right? So this True. is yeah. this is very much a a, a modern list. So um, that's my caveats. Okay. That said, here we go. All right, um, we begin on November sixth, nineteen ninety nine. And as I wrote that day, I thought, God, what an innocent time that now seems. Our biggest worry was whether ATMs would work in seven weeks when, the, when we moved to a new century. But there you go. Anyway, the scene is the Atlantic City Convention Center. The fight, Derek Jefferson against Maurice Harris. In heavyweight action on an HBO boxing after dark co-main event. Jefferson was a prospect going in. He was 21-0-1-1. But Harris was 16-9-2. I don't think. Anybody really had a great deal of thought about this fight at all whatsoever. Um, you know, and in the second round, it looked as if there was reason for that because Derek Jefferson was the prospect and he put Harris down and then he put him down again. But then the fight kicked off because Harris promptly put Dex Jefferson down in that same round. Um, Jefferson had Harris hurt, badly hurt in the third. Um, had Steve Smoger, our former guest, not stopped to make sure that Harris uh, put his mouthpiece back in. He might have gotten a knockout and we still might not have had a classic fight. Then Jefferson had Harris down again in the sixth, but then Harris turned the tables once more, seemingly had Jefferson on the ropes until, boom, <laughs> a big left hook had Harris out cold and had Larry Merchant proclaiming, Derek, <laughs> Jefferson, I love you. 
<laughs> that is a great pick and uh, a, a great indicator of how many contenders there are for this and how hard it is to keep uh, to keep all the fights we've seen straight in our mind, as, as you sort of suggested at the beginning, that they all blur together, because I was at that fight, as I think I've mentioned. Uh, it is one of my all-time favorite fights, and I completely forgot about it when I was thinking of contenders <laughs> for this, but certainly worthy of, of the top five. Great choice to start yeah, with. Yeah, I am going to leave a lot, like <laughs> yeah. even in, in the in the follow-up list. There are going to be so many, I know, with, with this, that, I, that you're going to come up with suggestions, and I'm going to go, oh, yeah, right. how come I didn't think of that? So anyway, my next one, we spin the time wheel forward 12 years or so uh, to July 15th, 2011. Uh, the place is the Roseland Ballroom in New York, New York. The fight is an ESPN Friday Night Fights main event between Delvin Rodriguez and Paul Volak. Uh, Volak was 29-1, coming off a surprisingly dominant performance against Yuri Foreman, but he also wasn't that far removed from a convincing points loss to Ishe Smith. Rodriguez, meanwhile, was coming off a year-long absence from the ring on the back of a highly controversial loss to Ashley Theophane, and that was really the story about Delvin Rodriguez, that he was often at the wrong end of dubious decisions. Uh, it seemed like an all right fight on paper, but not necessarily anything special. But it turned into terrific scrap. Uh, with Volak looking to get inside and apply pressure and Rodriguez firing hard punches from longer range. And then in round four, Volak began to develop a huge swelling by his right eye and, on, and by his right temple and by bout end had turned into a full Rockman. Um, <laughs> the story of, of the fight from round four onwards, especially the last couple rounds, was the ringside physicians desperately looking for an excuse to stop the fight and Volak refusing to give them one, continuing to barrel forward and throw punches, even though he could only see out of one eye by that stage, referee Steve Smoger. And <laughs> it cannot be coincidental <laughs> right. that we already have two fights that were refereed by Steve Smoger. Uh, said when the ringside physicians turned to him, eh, it's ugly, but I don't mind. God bless him. <laughs> um, they battled to the end and the result was a 10 round majority draw. Rodriguez won the rematch and Volak promptly retired. The thing I love about this fight for this list is that it was underhyped beforehand, was just this talk of the sport for a couple of weeks afterwards because nobody could quite believe that Volak had been able to fight on with this massive swelling on his head. Uh, I actually bumped into him at the MGM Grand a couple of weeks later and he was still bruised. Hmm. Um, and then it kind of disappeared again. Yeah, it, it won the Boxing Writers Association Fight of the Year but it's not a fight that people talk about. Uh, to me, it's an unexpected, unhyped, and somewhat forgotten mini classic. Uh, yes, more than somewhat forgotten. It's another one that I forgot when I was, <laughs> I, but it's a perfect, a perfect choice for this list. And uh, the one detail about it that uh, that you didn't mention that's just worth noting that I recall is just uh, Teddy Atlas, ever the enunciator, uh, people making fun of him for it sounding like he was saying Power Warlock instead of Pavel <laughs> Warlock. So, Power Warlock uh, put up a good, uh, good, good fight against uh, Delvin Rodriguez. He was a Power Warlock. All yes. right, for our next fight, we head all the way out to the West Coast and what was then the Home Depot Center before it became StubHub, before it became the Dignity Health Park, March sixteenth, twenty thirteen. Tim Bradley, Ruslan Provodnikov. Um, we so indelibly associate Provodnikov now with being just an absolute beast of a boxer that I think it's easy to forget that, at least in my recollection, he was barely known. And really not expected to put up much of a fight against Bradley. And Bradley going into this fight was in an odd position. He was officially unbeaten. He was officially coming off a win against Manny Pacquiao. But we all know he didn't beat Manny Pacquiao. Tim Bradley knew he didn't beat Manny Pacquiao. And unfairly, 
a lot of the stench of that decision was 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 put on Tim. And and so it was just a bit of an odd vibe going into this fight. But then Provodnikov just went off. Um probably should have been credited with a knockdown in round one, could have gotten a 10-8 round in the second, because he was just battering Tim Bradley. Um, Bradley said afterwards he was concussed in that round. He couldn't remember the rest of the fight, and he would willingly and openly talk for some time afterwards about how that fight just really messed him up. Um, Despite that, Timmy settled down, began to fight back well, box well, uh, outboxed Provodnikov for much of the rest of the way, except that then Provodnikov would come through and there'd be these sequences that he was just battering Tim again. Um, few people can have won a fight while being beaten up as badly as Tim Bradley was on that night. And um, Provodnikov would definitely not be overlooked again and indeed proved to be a very popular fighter until he re- retired from the sport just a few years later. All right, we finally have one that uh, that I did think of and jotted down, uh, including uh, uh, among the fights that I was uh, hoping you would mention. Certainly, this one qualifies uh, exactly what you said. Like we knew Provodnikov was pretty good, but this fight was still not not getting a lot of hype, and it was sort of thought to be a relatively safe fight for Tim Bradley, and uh, anything but that, as it turned out. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the final two are very recent. And I sort of, part of me feels bad about them being so recent, but they fit and they're good ones. Um, first up is 2019's fight of the year between the Oya Inoue and Onito Donair in Saitama, Japan on November 7th. It wasn't that this fight had no attention. It wasn't that it wasn't hyped at all, that it, people weren't aware of it. Everybody was very, very aware of it, but it wasn't being hyped up as being a great fight. There were a lot of people, especially me, but both of us, who kind of hoped that Donaire would suffer some kind of injury before he actually got to the arena or tripped up on the ring steps, I think, was something that I that I suggested. Because we didn't want Nonito to go in against Naoya in Oye because we were really worried he was going to get broken in half, like literally. Um, but it did not take long for Nonito to show that those expectations were completely wrong. Um, I certainly didn't expect Donaire to open a cut over Noe's eye in the second with a left hand that may well have actually broken Noe's orbital bone. And in something of a replay of Bradley Provodnikov, Noe also saying later that he was a bit concussed after round two and couldn't see properly um, for the rest of the fight. Um, time and again, it looked as if Inoue was asserting himself on the contest and things were going as we expected them to. And time and again, just as he looked like he was about to establish himself as the top dog, back came Donaire uh, to push him to the brink again. Uh, the 11th round, of course, is a classic. Inoue dropping Donaire, and we all thought, oh, okay, finally, that's it. But back Nonito came again. Um, and then Inoue turning it back around in that round. Classic round, classic fight, completely unexpected because Nonito Donaire was widely predicted, not least by me, to be flattened in a round or two, and instead he reminded us of why he's a very good Hall of Fame candidate. Yeah, this happens every so often in boxing that uh, the entire boxing world fears for the health of a veteran uh, in, a, in, in a big fight, and then that veteran basically puts us all in our place. You know, the the obvious examples are Holyfield in the first Tyson fight yep. and Ali against George Foreman that people thought that he would, you know, he was putting himself in physical danger. Now, both of those guys won those fights. Uh, Nonito did not, but he came pretty damn close and made us look pretty damn foolish uh, for, yeah. for thinking he was in over his head here. 
The final example is the most recent example. It's perhaps the most obvious example, but it's arguably the very best example of <laughs> yep. them all. It is, of course, Jose Cepeda and Ivan Baranchik. Um, look, when they walked to the ring and the bubble at the MGM Grand, did anybody really expect much of anything, let alone the completely bananas about that unfolded? Um, you talked earlier about how your Twitter was kind of nuts on Friday night. If you recall, I wasn't watching this fight live and right. I didn't think about it. And I only really realized what was going on when Twitter was just going bananas as everybody was watching this. Uh, a very brief recap. Zapata <laughs> down twice in round one. Both men down once in round two. Baranchik down once in the third and again in the fourth. Zapata getting a knockdown caught against him after the ropes held him up in round five and then ending the fight with a massive punch that folded Baranchik in half. Like, actually folded him in half. Absolutely bonkers. Fight of the year 2020. Definitely a fight we will be talking about uh, for some time to come. And I don't think it was on anybody's radar going in. No, I mean, you just listen back to the podcast that we recorded at the time. The week leading up to this, I think we gave it one sentence of sort of a mention of, oh, there's a fight this weekend. Zapata Baranchek looks decent. That was it. We breezed right by it. The week afterward, we did a whole segment uh, marveling over it for a good 10 or 12 minutes. So, yeah, perfect example of a fight that nobody paid much attention to going in. And then it was the runaway fight of the year. Yeah. Uh, and so there are a few others that I thought about. And this is where we'll really see when you come up with your list as well, just how many fights I forgot. Uh, some of the ones I put down partly to show off in the very definition of unheralded fights, I'll put the Francis Lafreniere's 10 round win over Ronald Saint-Just on the undercard of the Sergei Kovalev Jean Pascal rematch in 2016. The only reason I know how good it was is because I was there because it wasn't on HBO or as far as I know, I don't think it was televised anywhere except Canada. And this was another one where those of us sitting ringside were tweeting about how amazing this fight was. And uh, nobody who wasn't in Canada had any way of actually telling if we were telling the truth or not. Um, some Shaxi Chachawal's 10th round stoppage of Maya Monshipur from 2006 is still relatively unknown yeah. and, and unseen state. So I have no idea how hyped it was beforehand in Thailand or France, but it was a tremendous war. I think it caught most of us, certainly me, on this side of the Atlantic off guard. Um, and, and still, you struggle to find people over here who've seen it. Uh, a very similar fight to Inoue Donaire was Eric Morales, Marcus Maidana. Maidana mm. won, as he was expected to, but only after Morales had taken him to hell, which he was not expected to. Um, and then there's a couple that are, you know, a little bit iffy. I, I threw in Miguel Cotto with Cardo Torres because it was a terrific action fight at a time when Cotto was not known for being an action fighter. Um, and, and I think that was the first truly, really exciting fight that Cotto was in. Um, you could almost throw in there at a stretch not necessarily a classic fight, but certainly fits in unheralded. Uh, Floyd Mayweather, Emmanuel Augustus, because mm. if you're going to pick anybody to bloody the lip of the then 23 and 0 Mayweather, it sure as hell wasn't the 22, 16 and 4 Augustus. We'd never seen Floyd's blood before. And it was on a Saturday afternoon. That. Um, maybe Francisco Vargas Takashi Miura on the undercard of Cotto yep. Canelo. A terrific fight, or at least a very good fight that turned into a brutal, horrible beating that turned into an unexpected, dramatic comeback ending. We were ringside for it. I don't even know if we talked about it. We were there right. in, in Media Row 
for fight week i don't remember us even talking about it before I, i'm sure we did but i don't think we talked about it very much and then right. that just turned into an absolutely fabulous fight and yeah. then there are tons more that you're going to remind me of now. <laughs> all right so i'll start with one that is sort of a debatable pick how well it fits um but corrales castillo in just not you know the hardcore boxing fans we were all on high alert but it's it's right. sort of an interesting case of outside the hardcores this was way underhyped and uh but yeah it's kind of borderline because we kind of knew it had the potential right. to be something special a couple of mickey ward fights that uh that i thought of because i am biased in favor yep. of mickey ward in all situations his uh you mentioned uh, emmanuel augustus against uh floyd mayweather mickey ward emmanuel augustus was one of those fights that nobody was talking about beforehand and then by round four teddy atlas is screaming call your friends tell them to turn on this fight <laughs> uh and the other one another espn friday night fights from that same era mickey ward reggie green uh was a, a great fight that didn't have much hype coming in and right around in that same era remember this one julio gonzalez and julian letterlow do you remember that fight oh yes yeah everybody's bouncing off the canvas (laughs) yep yep lots of knockdowns a a real thriller that was just sort of a viewed as almost like a club club fight level sort of thing coming in and i ended up being a fight of the year contender and then a, a few that i'll add that go a little deeper into the archives uh the 1991 ring magazine fight of the year uh robert kuroga and akim anifawosh just a a brutal fight um that certainly was not getting a lot of attention beforehand um this fight may have gotten some attention coming in because one of the fighters you know was a was a rising star uh but i don't know that anyone was expecting a classic fight it's just the the, the great upset of uh Cruz over barry mcgiggan uh, i very nearly included that. okay yeah. i very nearly included that yes um and then uh one the only one of these that i would say that uh like your your list was great the five that you came up with can't dispute any of them and none of these also rands that i came up with feel any better except maybe this one salvador sanchez and azuma nelson maybe should maybe should crack the top five as a great fight that nobody really knew anything about azuma nelson at the time so uh it was not considered to be you know a serious challenge for salvador sanchez and then it turns out this young guy comes from out of nowhere and pushes him to the brink and we get a great fight out of it yeah wasn't that almost Sanchez's last fight or, or close to that? I was... believe without looking up his record, I think he might have only had one more after that. Yeah. 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 Ah, see, that was, a, that was good. That was, I, it was interesting. Like I, I thought, you know, at first when you, when you gave me the assignment, I thought, oh, this is going to be tough. And then I could think of a couple. I thought, oh, it'd be easy to fill them out. But it was difficult not in that we were struggling for ones to put in there, but I think we are going to hear a lot from listeners who are going to remind us of just what we forgot. Yeah, Yeah, and especially if anyone, any of our older listeners go way back. As you said at the beginning, if there were fights, great fights from the 60s, the 50s, the 40s, you know, we wouldn't necessarily know what was what was hyped coming in and what wasn't very good chance. We missed uh, some good stuff from that era. Yeah. Cause I wanted to put in Foreman Lyle, but I just didn't know like right. where, you know, cause Lyle had come off a good fight against Ali and where was Foreman in public perception? Like he'd lost to Ali. He'd had that weird exhibition, uh, five fights in one day kind of thing. And I'm like, was it a surprise for people? I just simply didn't know. So. I feel comfortable saying that whatever the hype was for that fight, it exceeded it. 
Yes, that is it. <laughs> that is fair to say. Exactly. All right. Uh, do write into us. Let us know what you think. I know that you guys are going to have suggestions. You always do. So thank you very much uh, in advance for your thoughts on that. That will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Rask and Mulvaney. Thanks again to our guest, Keith Uh We will be back next week to review both the Showbox card and the Showtime Championship Boxing card in greater depth and picks. Until then, thank you for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. docuseries on Paramount Plus. Why did he kill his family? The answer lies across the ocean in a woman named Sylvie. She's a can model. Where desire leads to deception. I ended up spending twelve and fifteen thousand dollars a day. It was addictive. I can't get you out. And obsession leads to murder. Who did this to your family? You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control all desire. Now streaming on Paramount Plus.